0: Father in heaven, what a gift that you would speak to us and in your kindness that you would have your word recorded in this book. So help us come to it, not like any other text that has ever existed or will ever be written, but what it is, your living and active word. It comes to us to challenge us, to comfort us, to encourage us, to inspire us, to train us, to settle our souls, to energize us and motivate us and to shape us and inform us. It does so much. But what every person in this room needs most right now, whether they've been a Christian for 70 years, seven days, or they don't yet know how good Christ is, what every single person needs right now in our songs, our conversations, in communion, during this sermon, and throughout this week, is that Jesus Christ would be lifted high. That we might leave this time more impressed, more confident, more settled on Him. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and do that work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the beginning, God creates a perfect world. He says things like this, like, let there be light. There's light. He says, let there be an expanse between the sea and the land, and let there be a separation between the day and the night, and let the earth spring forth things like plants and vegetation, and let animals be created And let humans be created. And throughout all these days of creation, as you go back to the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible called Genesis, as you hear this refrain, and behold, it was good. Day three, oh, and behold, it was good. And then you get to the end of this creation account and you actually hear God, or, or the Bible says this, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good except one thing. You go a few verses later in chapter 2 of Genesis and we see one thing that is said to be in not good in God's perfect paradise it's it's said to be not good. Extra cookie to anybody that can tell me what it is. What was not good in the second chapter of Genesis? Anyone know? Yeah, it's not good. It's not good. He's not supposed to be alone. Pause for just a second. Think about this. I was thinking like how to to describe my my version of of this garden paradise that God was brilliantly creating and shaping, walking with Adam. It's it's like going to the nicest, all-inclusive Caribbean resort, white sand beaches, somebody else paid for it. No hurricanes threatening it. It's just the best food, the best music, the best conversations because he's there with God in this incredible environment, and yet there's something that's not good. Now, oftentimes that phrase, it's not good for man to be alone, is applied to marriage, which is appropriate. God sees it's not good for man to be alone, and so he makes a partner for him. He makes Eve, but it's a huge mistake and a huge miss to think that's the extent of what's being said in that verse. This is not so much a get married passage as you need community passage. It's not good, no matter who you are, your background, your personality, introverts in the room, I feel you, to be incessantly alone. We were made by a relational God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We were made relational. We were made for community. And just because that's what we're made for, it doesn't mean it just happens and doesn't mean it's always easy. Andy Crouch in his book, um, this book, which I'll reference a little bit later, The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World, he says this, if there's one word that sums up the crisis of personhood in our time for the powerful and the powerless, it is loneliness. Then he builds this case. He talks about Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General under President Obama and then President Biden uh, wrote this in 2017 in the Harvard Business Review, in quotes, now, during my years, caring for patients, the most common pathology, the most common reason we get sick and how it manifests itself, I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. Ben Sauce, who became U.S. Senator for Nebraska in his 2018 book, Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal, argued that the root of all conflict and political polarization in the U.S. is this, loneliness. Businesses see the issue. According to one study, um, objective, and quotes now, social isolation, costs the U.S. Medicare system $6.7 billion annually. Social media has not helped. We have never been more connected and more lonely. But we don't have to be. And that's the beauty of the text we're gonna look at today. That's the, the, this thing that the Lord offers us in this felt and very real reality of, of loneliness. God offers us something different. He offers us life together. Now, I'm gonna say this on the front. Christians have no, in no way cornered the market on community. I'm gonna to try to argue though that, that there is something built into Christianity that makes that type of community both distinct and durable. And it moves it from friendship to to family. We're going to see it in this text, this, this phrase, brothers. It means brothers and sisters, but, but this, this, this term is a key word in this text. So is another word we'll see, which is called dwell. When brothers dwell in unity together. The closest parallel that I believe we have to what's happening in this text, I would suggest to you is actually a church. And specifically, it would be a local church. It's, it's this. A group of mostly unrelated people that have chosen to weave their lives together because of Jesus. And it can be so good, amen? And it can be so weird (laughs) and so hard and so tricky. So we're gonna look at both those things. We're gonna look at how Christian community can be tricky. I was gonna say hard, but I'll just say tricky or precarious and how Christian community can be so, so good. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? For those of you that aren't used to standing for the reading of God's word, one of the reasons we do this is as if a great king is about to address us, has come into the room, so we stand at attention. This is God's holy, wonderful pathway to flourishing word. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down the beard on the beard of Aaron. Running down on the collar of his robes, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Feel free to grab a seat. This text begins with the word, behold. It's sort of like, wake up and see this. And this implies at least two things. One is that this is really incredible, the second thing is, this is really extraordinary meaning it's not common. It's, it's not there all the time. And it's actually reinforced by this word when, saying when brothers actually dwell in unity, it is a good and a precious thing. I don't need to, th- to prove that friendships can sour. The Christian community and churches can be difficult and they can fracture and they can split. They can frustrate and annoy. There are probably a never-ending series of reasons, but let me give you two from this text that I believe are there. Um, two reasons that Christian community can be trickier, two reasons that Christian community can be difficult, or two reasons that Christian community is precarious, two reasons, idealism and uniformity. Our tendency to idealize what community life is supposed to be like and our tendency to, to actually step over unity and to have more homogeneity to want things to be uniform, to want everyone to think and act the way that we do. This psalm is truly lovely. It might be easy to miss the reality behind the poetry, but let's take Aaron, who's who's featured in this text. He was a high priest of, of God's people on the scenery. Here is this oil coming down on his robe as he represents God's people Aaron was, by, by all accounts, a good brother. He had a brother named Moses. Moses was his younger brother who was another one of God's uh, leaders in, in, the early, in, his early, uh, in the early church. And, and, and they had a good relationship. They supported each other in ministry. They seemed like they have a decent friendship, but it wasn't perfect. There was a, there's a scene, I think, in Numbers, in another book of the Bible, where Aaron and then also Moses' sister, Miriam, they get together in a tent, and they're frustrated because Moses had been appointed by God to be the leader of the people. They were there to help serve and accommodate, but they got really angry, and here's what they got angry about. They got angry because of who Moses married. And so they get together, they grumble, they mock him, they malign him, they, they dismiss him. David, the one who wrote this psalm, David had great friendship you go back and read about David, he's one of Israel's kings. Oh, he had deep friendships. He wrote this Psalm because he had such deep friendships, but he also wrote things like this, Psalm 41, 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Or this one in Psalm 55, verses 12 and 14, for it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from it. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throne. we had such deep friendship. We worshiped Jesus together. We, We worshiped in the temple together. We worshiped in the house of the Lord together. And some of you have experienced that. Here's something I hear far too often, far too often. If I had only ever heard it once, it would be far too often. And it's absolutely heartbreaking to me. We're leaving the church. Not just Redeemer. We're leaving the church. We're just disillusioned with the church. We're around the church. We just don't see it. We just don't buy into it anymore. Now, for some of you in this room, that makes absolutely no sense. You go, man, I have great community here. These are great friends. Man, they cared for me when I was hurting. You know, they they prayed for me when I was down. They revived me when I was was sad. They they visited me when I was lonely. I've learned so much. I've, I've grown, I mean, all those, like, praise God if that has been your experience. But perhaps some of you, you're ready to be done with church too. You're kind of on that last, like, man, we'll see what happens. First, praise God you're here. We're so glad you're here. Second, there's probably people around you that can understand why you might be feeling that way. We all see the same headlines. We see the headlines of abuse. We see the headlines of domineering leadership. We, we, we hear the rumblings and rumors of, of how the church can be so harsh when people sin. They can embarrass and, and shame. Like we see those headlines and so we, we, we can understand with you. But perhaps consider a different lens as you think about the local church. I'd suggest one of the most common reasons people give up on church so they don't stay long enough in any one Christian community to truly develop a deep and abiding roots that allow you to flourish is this, idealism. Just unrealistic expectations. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I pulled the sermon title from in his, his really wonderful book, Life Together, um, wrote this, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community but the person who loves those around them will create community. We put this in the marriage context. One of my favorite marriage books is, so what did you expect? You know, when two sinners say, I do, and you get into a marriage, there's going to be weirdness and friction. There's lots of can be lots of great things, but there's lots of difficult things. Just learning how to like, like how to sleep next to somebody who 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 sleeps different than you. You know, they have like arm over here, you like your arm here, and they put their arm in your armpit. I mean, they snore. They, you know, they they, they, they like they eat garlic, and then the middle of the night they don't realize what they are doing to the environment of the room. I mean, this is just. <laughs> You feeling me? Like, like it, it's, it can be weird and hard and, and like we're, we're slowly being sanctified and when we're slowly being sanctified, we're spinning off our sin shrapnel on the people around us and it hurts them. But what did you expect? With the local church, what'd you expect? Sometimes the gravest enemy of a good church is idealism. It's an unrealistic expectation to what this actually is. Think about it like two different expressions of the church in what's known as the New Testament, the last third of the Bible, um, Acts 2 or Corinth. So here's your church options. Acts 2, this beautiful picture of the church being birthed. 3,000 people come to faith. They're they're devoted, like with one heart, to to the Bible. They're devoted to to the gospel. They're in each other's homes. They're breaking bread. They're showing up joyfully. They have all of their possessions in common. People are being healed. The gospel's going forth. It is like, that's what we want. We see this picture in the book of Acts, and we say, oh my goodness, like like my needs are cared for by the people around me. People know me. I'm seen. I'm recognized. The, the, the grace of God is loud and, and real. Or Corinth. you know anything about Corinth, we could pick almost any other New Testament church. A church where people were so selfish that the, the haves would get drunk on the communion wine before the have-nots had an opportunity to partake in it. A place that was rampant with, with sexual immorality as they were forming relationships that were just so messy and screwed up. People were like, they, they picked their, their, their leader. They, there's all these little cliques in the church. Oh, I follow Paul. He's my guy. Oh, I follow Apollos. And then you had the like hyper-spiritual, like, well, I follow Jesus. I don't need any leader, just me and Christ. They, they, were, they were arrogant with one another because of their spiritual gifts. God gave them gifts for the building up of the body of Christ, and yet they, they said, my gift's more important than your gift. What I can do serves the church more than what you can do. And we look at these pictures and we go, oh, I don't want to be in Corinth. I don't want to be there. Let me reframe it for you because Corinth, you know what Corinth was? The bride of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the people of God, the hope of the world, declared to be saints, oh, messy, oh, Super screwed up. If you're newer to this church, that's us. We're probably more Corinth at times than we'll be Acts chapter two. But in that beautiful mess, God is saying, it's my people. The problem with this, idealism, it it doesn't just set you up for disappointment. It actually blinds you to actually what's good. Like Redeemer, you are, a beautiful church. I've been a part of this community for 15 years. You are an absolutely stunning collection of God's people. There are hundreds of really beautiful stories for any of the sad or hard ones. It's about someone named Vanessa. who was one of our deaconesses for a number of years. She moved here from New Mexico um, she came up here to, to help get trained as a church planter with someone else that came here. And when, when that kind of took some twists and turns that didn't go the way it was supposed to, instead of moving back to New Mexico, which is where she's from and her family, she, just, she, she, she stayed for like another 10 years. She stayed for like another 10 years. And you know the reason why? You said, this is my church. I think my friend Nicole, I can, I'm looking at, she, she moved out of state, um, moved down to Texas, kind of like a lot of Washingtonians did, you know, in the last year or two. This was before that, though. She moved back during. She was like the anti, you know, migrate away, Texas and Idaho. And um, she moved back because she loves you and she loves her friends and she loves her community here. Pete, our community life pastor, was up here doing Announcements and welcomes. Just, he got trained. I don't know if you this. he was trained actually, spent five years getting trained to be a church planter. And we were getting ready to actually send him out. And we were on a walk over here in Welcome Falls. And we were trying to hire a community life pastor for like two years. And we couldn't find the right person. And he just said, Hey, Rob, I know that you, that like I've been trained for this. You know, I want to go and plant churches. You know, that's what I felt like the Lord was calling me to. But, but you know what? I, What if I stay? I really love our church and I want to serve our church. He laid down what his desires were. Do you know why? You, for you. Oh, I think about the Freeze family. Nathan and Anna, who with baby Gabriel for five to six months now have just been going through the hardest thing And I think about all the people in this church that continue to pray, that continue to cook meals, that continue to write cards. Do you know that we made so many cards for Gabriel? There was no room in the hospital to put, there was no room. They have to like put them up, swap them out, pull them down, put new ones up. It is stunning. I got an email just this morning from from Teresa uh, Hubbard who's helping to coordinate so much of the care saying finally he got the tubes out. We haven't seen his smile in a month, but we get to see him smile again. Oh, it's beautiful. It's good. It's precious. And when you're idealistic, you will miss it. You'll miss it. Don't let idealism sour you. All right, I got to speed this up. We need to speed this up. You're like, we, (laughs) it's you, buddy. I know. Idealism, the other thing that'll kill this is uniformity, not unity. This text says unity, not uniformity. That's massive, and it's easy to miss, but clue on this word, brother. The main application of this psalm is not to say to your sons, stop whacking each other. Like, this isn't the the parenting verse to, to try to speak over them so they don't fight. This is not primarily about domestic bliss. Brothers or brothers and sisters, it's about unrelated people finding deep and abiding friendship. One of the things that makes Christian community and the local church so difficult It's the dwelling together, as this text says, the dwelling together of people that probably wouldn't be friends to begin with. Like, think about that. You don't vote the same, you don't parent the same, you don't see the same social maladies or cures, you consume media differently. You do schooling differently. Redeemer Church is a church of hunters and vegans. And I'm not talking like hunting for, you know, uh, mushrooms, right? I mean, it's... (laughs) We are a church of, like, giant, get-seven-miles-to-the-gallon trucks without exhaust pipes... And then people with recumbent bikes, you know, that move couches on a bike trailer. I mean, that's, that's our church. And it's freaky and weird, and it's beautiful. Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman, in their book, Rediscover Church, Why the Body of Christ is Essential, say this. They say, God does not invite us to church because it's comfortable. It's not a comfortable place to find a bit of spiritual encouragement. No, he invites us into a spiritual family of misfits and outcasts. He welcomes us into a home that's rarely what we want, yet just what we need. Why? Why is it so good that it's not homogenous? Well, because the kingdom of God is not homogenous. It's every tribe, every tongue, every language. It's, the most, it's, it's going to be the most diverse reality. Every economic class, every educational background, every language, every food every artistic expression of music and and drama, I mean, every sport. It's in this weird thing called the local church and Christian community where our biases are exposed and confronted, where our opinions are not the most important thing because other people become the most important thing. This is the place where you are sinned against and offended and then have to struggle with how do I forgive them like Christ forgave me. That's where we truly embrace what love is. It's patient. It's kind. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures. This is actually where you learn to love your enemies because they're sitting next to you. frustrate us, annoy us, vote differently than us. Did I already say that one? Vote differently than us. And yet we stick together. And yet we stick together. And what happens is stunning. And in my, I can't remember if I've been in my house for seven or eight years, something like that, seven or eight years, and my front garden... I've replanted now seven or eight times every single year. I plant in the spring, following spring, I rip it out and I start over. Right now there's some hydrangeas, there's some little lime uh, hydrangeas that are in the front that I planted this last spring. They look really pathetic, really pathetic. They're they're scrawny, they kind of got singed, all the blossoms got singed this summer. Because they didn't have roots, they like every year I yank something out and I put something back in. They have no time to actually develop deep roots to tap down into to, to nutrient-rich soil to have the sort of system to have the the, the depth of, of 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 thickness of a twig and bark to be able to sustain true true life. And when we have this desire, this idealism, or, or this, this, we conflate uniformity and unity, because unity sounds great to be said. It gets awkward and weird when you're around it. But what happens is we keep pulling ourselves out of one community and putting it in another. And then we pull ourselves out of that community, we put ourselves in another. We pull it, and we just don't have the, the opportunity. We don't have the seasons and the growth of all the awkward, hard stuff to get through so that we can actually begin to flourish. I love Colin Hansen Jonathan, and Jonathan. Again, what they say is it might seem easier to look for a church where everyone thinks, votes, and sins. I love that they included that. Sins the same way you do. It's better for your spiritual growth, however, to hunker down in a fellowship of difference. You want to find a church that grabs the world's attention? Find a church that looks like the world to come. All right. That's what this psalm is about. That's what's good and precious, that's what's beautiful a community of difference for the sake of Christ that stick it out together and in the process look more like Jesus. And it can be tricky, but it can also be so good and so worth it. We're gonna look at where that comes from and what it produces. The word brother here in this text, this is not a throwaway word. It actually defines the type of relationship that's being celebrated, that's being praised. This is a poem and a song that's being written about. It's a family term, a term of permanence, a term of endurance, a term of like stick to itness, of closeness. And the reality is, is that term that's that's written here was one of the primary terms that was used in the New Testament church that was birthed by Christ. There's a reason that Christians, they they, they would begin to call each other brother and sister. That because of the work of Christ, they weren't merely forgiven, they were actually brought into a family with one another. G.I. Packer. Uh, phenomenal, phenomenal Christian man who passed away a few years ago. In his book, Knowing God, he gave a three-word summary of what's known as the gospel, the story of how God saves any of us. And he gave this three-word summary. He said, adoption through propitiation. And, and I, that's, I'm going to unpack it, but it's just, just, he goes, I don't think you'll ever find a more pregnant way to talk about what Christ's work does. Adoption through propitiation, that Christ Jesus came and he obeyed what we were meant to obey. He followed the will and law of the Lord flawlessly. And then he went to a cross in the place of not just his friends and not people that were neutral, but his enemies, where he then took the wrath of God, the just punishment that we have merited for our rebellion, for he takes the propitiation, this wrath-bearing offering. And he died in the place of all those who would trust. He was our obedience. He was our perfection. Then he became our sacrifice. Then he went to a tomb, and three days later, he rose again. But he didn't just rise to cleanse us. He didn't just rise to justify. He didn't just rise to make us righteous as we find ourselves in Christ. See, God looks down, and he sees, if you're in Christ, he sees you as if you did what Christ did. It's like his stats become your stats. His obedience Becomes your obedience because you're found in him. But here's what else he does. He's big brother Jesus that gives you a new family. See, God doesn't just stay God. He becomes father. I think Packer's one that said, father is the Christian's word for God. See, we get adopted in, and you know what that makes us now? We don't just have a father. We have a family. We have brothers and sisters in this weird thing called a local church. What's amazing is this addresses both of the ways that community can go wrong. Idealism. Well, the gospel says this, that you are more flawed, messed up, screwed up than you can imagine. Why would we ever be surprised when we disappoint each other? Like, You got into this whole thing by saying, "Ah, the only thing I bring to salvation is my need for it. Why would we be surprised that we keep struggling and messing up and gossiping and hurting each other and being slow to show up when we should show up and all of the rest, it, it takes our idealism and it says, no, here's what's real. I'm a sinner in need of grace. So are you. That's who we are. That's who we are. It takes that idealism and it says, oh, I'm a sinner in need of grace, and by the work of the Spirit, I'm a saint, and I'm being changed, and I can change, and I know I messed up, but I can grow. And so it gives us hope. Oh, we're not, we're not nihilists here. We're not, we're not this defeatist attitude of like, oh, it's always going to be bad. It's not bad. It's beautiful. It's good. It's just not perfect. The local church can be such a beautiful place. It's just not perfect. Not yet. But one day it will be. And so the gospel, it confronts our idealism. Also confronts uniformity. What's the most important thing about a Christian? It's in the first part of the word it's Christ. It's Christ. In a world of identity politics, the most important thing about a Christian is Christ. Oh, other things matter. I'm not minimizing the things that stir your hearts, that cause you grief, that make you weep, that get you up in the morning. Oh my goodness, I'm not. The most important thing about you, if you are a Christian, is Christ. And that helps hold us together because I can really just, look, I say stuff I don't agree with. I know I say stuff you don't agree with, okay? I get it. I get it. I don't always know what those things are, right? I always know I say something I shouldn't have said. I just don't always know what they are if I knew I wouldn't say it. There's things that you do I don't like. I see you on social media. I wish you would stop. I really do. (laughs) Except to post pictures like your kids. I love that. But there's things that you do that I don't like. I disagree with how some of you parent. I disagree with how some of the things you watch. I I disagree with some of the stuff that I probably disagree with things that you've voted for. I disagree with clubs that you're part. You disagree with stuff I got. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. But you know what we have in common? Christ, Christ, it, 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 the gospel, it just obliterates this idealism and it obliterates this, this it, it pushes us past the homogenous, easy, yes, everyone around me does exactly what I do, votes, sins, all the same. And it pushes us towards unity because that's what Christ came to do, was to get a global family of every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And what this could create and what I believe it's created at Redeemer is a category gory, defying Christian witness. A lot of people that don't share a ton of stuff in common, but we share what's most important, which is Christ. That's the birthplace of Christian community, is Christ and the gospel, and it's beautiful. Out of all of this, you get something pleasant. That's the imagery of this text about this precious oil. It, it actually is referenced in places like Exodus chapter 30. There's like a recipe that's given for it. This was a very particular type of oil that was only used for the anointing of God's priests as representatives of the people. It, was, it would take liquid myrrh and sweet-smelling cinnamon and aromatic cane and olive oil. That was the recipe. It would be put together it was made by a perfumer, someone who was a master at this. It was this, this visual ceremony. Is the oil would be poured down on the priests, and it would, it would feel the space. You would smell it everywhere. It, 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 like you would just inhale this sense of the very manifest presence of God, that he is with us, that he is for us. And in this text, it says it's dripping down. It's, just, it's flowing down. It's coming from heaven, and it's just spilling out towards the community. It's like when you walk into a house and someone made fresh bread. Mmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you just stop. <laughs> Avenue bread's gonna like have a huge line after the service. <laughs> you know, or fresh baked cookies. Cider on the stove. You know, as we go into fall and pumpkin spice lattes. And there's just like a way that it just, it hits you and it takes you to a place. I was on sabbatical three years ago, and um, what a gift you all gave me to be able to take three months off. And the only rule is I couldn't come here. That I was like, you can't open your email, you turn your phone off, you cannot come here. And uh, that was both really good and frankly, really hard. It was so hard that the Sunday before I was coming back, I, I, could, I just couldn't stay away. And so I actually, I went up on the hillside up here above the church, there's a little bench up here, and I sat there during the services. I know it sounds creepy, (laughs) always watching, right? (laughs) But I just sat up there on this bench, and, and I watched you pull in, and I watched you see friends that park next to you, and I watched you smile and hug, I watched you laugh, I watched you wrangle your kids, get them checked in, I watched, I could hear the hum of conversations outside after the service, oh, it was like the best fragrance. It's like, that's where I want to be. This place of shared life and shared stories and shared sorrows and shared wins and shared hurts. And it's like the Dew of Hermon, which falls on Mount Zion. This text uses these two similes to try to talk about what's precious and good. Now, the Dew of Hermon is interesting because Mount Hermon was actually the tallest mountain in Israel, it's the only snow capped mountain in Israel is on the far north. It wasn't right next to Mount Zion where Jerusalem is. And so the imagery of this, it's like the, it's like the moisture, it's like the clouds, it's like what got manifest out on the, this snow-capped peak comes down to dry and dusty Jerusalem. And it brings life. It brings life. It's like something from a distant place comes near, and it brings life. Last Sunday was a ridiculous Sunday for our church. It was amazing. We did a commissioning here of a family to go off and plant churches and make disciples. Um, Just love this family. It's always that bittersweet, like we're sad to see you go, but oh, we're so excited about the work you're doing. And then we went over to to Patton where people have set up and prepared and organized and we potlucked and we cooked and we feasted and we baptized nine people. And it was crazy though, as we were getting ready, it was right when I was about to to kind of pray and lead us. I look up and I see my friend Ben Clifford up in, in the background. And Ben, if, if you don't know Ben, hopefully you get to know him, he was a part of our church for like five, six years. I got the joy of getting to disciple him and share a lot of our lives together. Um, and, and he had to, he moved away the last couple of years for work and he was able to come back and he like drove and drove and drove and he showed up unannounced at the barbecue. And as if you could make that moment any better, like we're baptizing nine people. We just commissioned a church planting team. Ben was like up on the hillside. Ben was up on the hillside. It was like, and I swear the sun was glowing behind him. It was just, and Ben and I have this thing. His name's Ben, Benjamin. So I'm always like, son of my right hand, because that's what that means in Hebrew. Benjamin means son of my right hand. I know it's goofy. I'm a pastor. What are you going to do? That's what it's like to be friends. But it just, my heart leapt. It really did. I almost announced it. That I was like, that would be inappropriate in this moment as we're about to baptize. Ben's here! It was like the dew of Hermon coming down into Mount Zion. That's the kind of friendships you get here, where you can get here. The dew, it's good. The perfume is pleasant. Imagine this type of real unity, unidealized, non-homogenous, sticking through the hard stuff with one another, learning how to live out our faith and forgive one another in a world of cancel. Imagine that. Imagine Christ's church in a cancel culture of snark and sarcasm and transactional relationships. Imagine what that could look like. I'll do this very quickly. I'll try to do this quickly. Uh, Let me give you some benefits of Christian community. It's good, it's precious, and we see these blessings that come. Um, What this is supposed to do for you is to provide a place of belonging. We see it in the word dwell. Dwell, it means to sit, to like really be down in. It actually can be used to, to marry. Um, not that you're marrying the church, but, it, it, but it's that type of significance in terms of relationship. Um, let me quote Andy Crouch again. He says this, he says, above all, we need a place where we can invest ourselves deeply in others, come to care about their flourishing and give ourselves away in mutual service and sacrifice in ways that secure our own identities instead of erasing them. The name for this kind of place, I have come to believe, is the household. This old, slightly musty word is the best option we have in English for something that was central to life in the ancient world and is still central to life in many cultures today. A household is both place and people, or maybe better, it is a particular people with a particular place. A household is a community of persons who may well take shelter under one roof, but listen to this, but also more fundamentally take shelter under one another's care and concern. They provide for one another and they depend on one another. They mingle their assets and their liabilities, their gifts and their vulnerabilities in such a way that it is hard to tell where one member ends and another member begins. I do not believe it's by chance that the church is called the household of God. This place that transcends, it's... it's it, it, that transcends the, like, the, the roof I'm under. It's the people I'm with. Household is not synonymous for family. I have uncles and aunts that, that I care about, but our lives don't intersect that much. This is the place where you say, this is where I'm known and I belong. This is what it means to dwell with. It's why we say like one of the big things we want for you is we want everyone to find their people. We want you to find your household. It's why we care so much about membership that you say like, I, w- I wanna be here and I wanna give myself to others and I want those people to give themselves to me. I wanna say like, I want help with my marriage. I wanna help their marriage. I, want, I need help with my finances. I wanna help with theirs. I need, I need help carrying these loads that I'm not designed to carry. I wanna help carry those. It, it, it's this way of saying I'm in, I'm here. I wanna be bought in. I, uh, and I want a little mechanism that it's not just easy to, to, to pull anchor and go to the next port when I get frustrated. Crouch goes on and he asks a really important question. Um, So we'll do a little story time here. How do you know if you're part of a household? And I could just summarize this, but I think it's so good. How do you really know? You're part of a household if there's someone who knows where you are today and who has at least some sense of how it feels to be where you are. You're part of a household if there's someone who moves more quietly when they know you're asleep. You're part of a household if someone would check on you if you did not wake up. You're part of a household if people know things about you that you do not know about yourself, including things that if you did know them, you would seek to hide. You're part of a household if others are close enough to see you and know you as well or better than you know yourself. You're part of a household if you can experience the conflict that is inevitable, that is the inevitable companion of closeness If someone else makes such demands on you that you sometimes fantasize about driving them out of your life. Part of a household if you sometimes dream of running away perhaps to a far country so that you will not be so terribly well-known. You're part of a household if you return from a long journey prompts a spontaneous celebration. You're part of a household if when you avoid a party because of your anger, pride, guilt, or shame someone notices and comes outside to plead with you to come in. Then he goes on and he says this, and we'll put a slide up for this. This is the one thing we need more than any other, a community of recognition. And for that, the household is the first and best place. We need a place where we cannot hide. We need a place where we cannot get lost. That's the local church. That's what we're supposed to be. And I know it's weird. I know it's difficult. I know it's hard. I know it doesn't always land this way. But get rid of the idealism and see the beauty and the potential and the opportunity that's around you. It's a place to believe. From Mount Zion, right? So the dry, dusty, dingy from Hermon, it, like the, the rains come over. It's like the, 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 this lavish deluge that, that hits the, Mount Hermon that creates these snow-capped peaks. It comes into dry and dusty Jerusalem and it produces life. It greens it up. I think this is captured very well by Bonhoeffer and his book Life Together. Listen to this. The Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ, the Christ. Oh, listen, this phrase is beastie. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother is sure. See, so much of church life is just retelling the things we already believe, but we keep forgetting. And what we need is to see one another's faith lit up when we're sitting there saying, my marriage is done. You know what you need? People around you say, no, it's not. The Lord is the Lord of resurrection. My child is sick. You know what you need? Someone who says, I will pray with you and I will sit with you and we will walk through this together. And if God doesn't do a miracle, I will hold you in your tears. We need someone who when they say like, I'm ashamed and I'm a, I'm afraid. Oh, they look you square in the eyes and say, Oh, my dear friend, you are a mess. (laughs) But there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. You know what makes that more real? Do you know what that reality? You know how that becomes more real to people? You saying it to someone else. After twenty years of being a pastor, it's one of the reasons we have these house rules in our church. Confession takes courage. Don't cringe. When someone comes to you and they bear their lives before you and they're just looking, they're saying, oh, I hope it's true that God will never leave or forsake me, that he has taken my sin as far as the east is to the west, because right now I am sitting in so much junk. And instead of leaning back and someone opens this up, they open up this closet and you see the skeletons, instead of recoiling, you lean in and you say, oh, I love you. Oh, I'm proud of you. Oh, let me remind you of who Christ is and what he's done for you. It's like the dew of Mount Hermon coming down into Jerusalem. And it's a place to be blessed. That's how this text ends. For there, in this weird thing called the local church, the Lord commands his blessing, life forevermore. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you would tune our eyes and our hearts our minds to see how good, not perfect, but how good the local church can be because of how great you are and how glorious the gospel is. We do ask that everyone here would be able to find their people. I also ask, I know it's easier for some to jump in than it is for others, but regardless of our personalities, even past experiences, help us to enter in and then help us to be the kind of people who show up. Keep the evil one far from us who just wants to come and, 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 and flag all the, all the nonsense and all the sadness that we read in headlines or we've even experienced in our lives and miss out on the good that's right here. We all need our people. We ask that you'd give it. But a people that are built on the gospel, of grace, not performance, of permanence, not temporary, not just of transaction, but one of adoption. God, I just, I abundantly praise you for this church. What a community. Oh, might they sense your smile. I think in this place, you have truly commanded your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.